Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in the studio today, Pat Leahy, Fia Kelly and Jennifer Bray. Later on in this podcast, we'll be trying and probably failing to figure out what's in store for us all in 2019. But first to the main story of this week. Pat, I'm looking at an opinion piece by Anne Noonan, who's um, who's a nurse at University Hospital Limerick in today's Irish Times, and she's basically making the case on behalf of the nurses who are taking industrial action now. And this is a sort of major, not just industrial issue, but political issue this week, isn't it? Yes, it is. The uh, nursing union's executive met, or the INMO uh, met yesterday, and its executive laid out a plan for one-day stoppages uh, beginning at the end of the month. The psychiatric nurses will meet tomorrow. They will, I guess, outline a similar timetable, which may overlap on the same days, maybe different days. But there's no doubt, as we identified here before Christmas, that we are heading for nurses' strikes. And in the piece today... And Noonan makes the case for pay increases for nurses, reasonably substantial uh, pay increases. The uh, the government estimates them at about 12% across the board. And what is unusual about these in terms of, say, disputes that have happened in uh, in recent years is that it is a it's a straight demand for an across the board pay increase for nurses, they say, to bring them up to uh, the levels that uh, what they say are comparable professions are are at. Government estimates the cost of this at €300 million a year in terms of pay and some further ancillary costs. And there is, insofar as I can detect it, talking to people within the government uh, apparatus about their uh, their attitude towards this. There is at this stage now, you may say that they would say this, wouldn't they? But there is a, a pretty firm determination to resist the pay demands by the nurses on the basis that not alone do they believe it 12 and a half, uh, 12% pay, uh, pay demand to be unreasonable, but they say that if they were to concede this, that the other public sector unions the following day would be knocking on their door looking for pay increases. And they know this mm-hmm. because the other unions have made it abundantly clear uh, to the government. So to concede this pay rise would not just uh, involve the, 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 the sort of financial hit that accrues uh, from the nurses' numbers, but would basically blow up the national pay agreement or the, the, the public sector pay agreement and therefore the government's budgetary plans and I don't think they'll be willing to do that. This though is an argument we're familiar with from previous industrial disputes and uh, government employees of one sort or another. I, I seem to remember many, many years ago when uh, loads of dosh was being handed out to public servants under Charlie McCreevy and his successors that one of the reasons for that was supposed to be that, that exactly the kind of thing which Pat has described that you know a pay increase in one sector 
uh, given on the basis of certain things specific to that sector doesn't knock on and ripple across the entire public service. There's a whole basis for the agreement that Pascal Dunne, who has referenced in recent days, saying we're in year one of an agreement that goes through 2019, 2020 and on, and, and, and on from there as well. As well as Pat, substantive point about the reasons why you can't do it, you know, it will blow up on their budget, uh, it will lead to knock-on effects from other unions. Almost the, union, the, the, the nursing unions are almost striking at precisely the wrong time as well because there's an awareness or a worry in government buildings, I'm told, around the Office of the Teaching in particular, that they have somewhat of a weak spot now or they believe they have a weak spot when it comes to keeping a rein on spending. So coming off the back of the IFAC report, which kind of laced through Pascal Donoghue and his budget and the budget strategy of the government, the massive overspending in the children's hospital, the Taoiseach is saying he wants to investigate this further, is going to have a real look at it. People around government are saying there's a, an acute sensitivity now that if they give anything further on any spending commitments, they will mm. be seen as being like Fianna Fáil of the past, as you say, Charlie McCreevy, not able to control spending, giving in to every interest group. So you could you, you kind of see how it's going to be a difficult one for the nurses, given that the substantive issue of they can't do it because it'll blow up with the budget, and then the perception issue that the government feel that they're already weak on controlling public spending. So the timing, may, is, the timing may be... political strategy. The timing this, may be so. bad, but there, I mean, there is a case that can be made and it is made in the, in, in, in this piece today. Uh, number one, that it's arguable that, you know, that it's arguable that nurses should be on the same level as other professions such as physiotherapists, which they're not currently. That's, that's one part of it. And the other part is something which is clearly the case, which is that nurses are going overseas because both the pay and the conditions of work, which they're finding here, are just, you know, they're not attractive. Funnily enough, that is what the nurses say, and I'm sure there is there is of course truth in that. Like you know, you 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 often see these trade fairs where people who have trained in Irish universities and third level institutions queuing up to go over to Britain or elsewhere where the paying conditions are better than they are here. That is to say, though, you know, if you work in higher population centres in other places, the wages can be higher but if you're in far-flung Nottingham or somewhere for example it may not be as attractive whatever but the government has countered that argument by saying that the public pay commission which it's set up to examine uh, pay and retention issues right across the sector did not find any retention issues specific to nursing over and above problems elsewhere in the public sector. So when Ann Noonan says, and I quote here, the health service executive now admits there's only one application for every four available nursing posts. I mean, that would sound, if it's true, that would, that would seem to be a huge problem, wouldn't it? It would, and the counter, not that I'm you know, speaking for anyone, but the counter-argument that the government has put out in recent days is that it says that the take-up, it's kind of going back a step and saying the take-up of nursing courses and associated uh, degree courses in third-level institutions is quite good. And they yeah, say they're not taking Irish jobs afterwards. Their view. No, is of that course they're 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 taking this very valuable uh, qualification and right. are doing what young people, lots of young people do. Uh, they're going abroad for uh, for a couple of years. The difficulty is, I suppose, that one of the reasons that uh, they're having difficulty in filling the posts uh, is that people don't necessarily want to come back because they're looking at things like the cost of housing and uh, and the cost of living here and, uh, and and those are things that will not necessarily be solved uh, the government says by simply paying nurses more I mean all of these arguments that the nurses are quite you know ably and skillfully marshalling lead one to their preferred conclusion which is you must pay us more but that is the conclusion that the government so far 
will not allow itself uh, to reach. Is this going to be a big fight, Jennifer? Yeah, I think so. And I think the, um, the problem is obviously bigger than the nurses, just the nurses. Um, we saw late last year that uh, some of the largest teaching unions, such as the INTO and the ASTI, rejected the other part of the government's plan to address the pay issue. So the first part, obviously, is this pay package and the work that the Public Service Pay Commission did. But the second part was their plan to end the inequality in relation to the two-tier system. Those plans were rejected by, I think, both the ASTI and the INTO. And the INTO wouldn't traditionally have been considered one of the more militant organisations. So I think that did take some in government circles by surprise. The two-tier system is the difference between people who came into the yes. profession after, after, 2011. after 2011. Exactly, yeah. And the inequality that kind of exists between the pay that p- those people have now and the people who they work alongside who are doing the exact same job have. Um, so that was also rejected. So I think what we're seeing actually is a, this sort of blanket rejection of the government's pay proposals. And, you know, there was one line in Anne Mooney's piece today where she said the government has lined up against us. Now, to be honest, that's not a great look. Yeah, I think this will be interesting because, you know, industrial disputes to a greater or lesser extent, particularly ones like this, are fought. The battleground is for public opinion. So what the nurses want is for, you know, to win public opinion over on their side and therefore to pressure the politicians into conceding. And given the nature of their job, there is a default position of public sympathy traditionally for the nurses. I think that will be difficult to sustain in a blanket way if this dispute rolls on because what the nurses will be doing, the the average pay for a nurse, including nurse managers, according to the Department of Public Expenditure, which signs the the checks, is between 57 and 58,000 euros a year once uh, allowances and premium payments such as overtime and so forth are included. 80% of nurses, the Department of Public Expenditure says, get paid over 43,000 euros, I think. Particularly the average uh, average wage is somewhere in the late late 30,000s. Graduate nurses, to complete the set of statistics, start on once again, once allowances and premium pay is included, start on 37 thousand euros a year now that is actually not a bad starting salary by comparison with other graduate recruitment which i think is in the base in in the region of 28 29 thousand euros when people uh, when graduates start work so I, I, I think it's a hard case for the nurses to make. I don't make a judgment on it myself here. That's not the purpose. I mean, there are counter-arguments. One but, of the reasons uh, why it's well, higher well, is because of the just, shift just, work and the weekends they do. There's a skill level yeah. involved, etc. Et but, but, but I think it will be a difficult case to make for the nurses. Two people who, in many cases, are less well-paid than them that they deserve... Uh, more money, which will have to be paid for out of the taxes paid by uh, by everybody. So I'm not saying that it's impossible, but I think it will be a difficult case for the nurses to make and sustain. One of the weapons, if you like, that the government seems to have alighted upon is Brexit. Brexit is going to be used for everything this year. And we were, a few of us were over in uh, Bavaria with the Taoiseach last week and we spoke to him on the, the fringes of uh, the CSU uh, conference about various domestic issues and we asked him about this issue and the first thing he said was, you know, well, if we have any spare cash next year, it's going to be used to save people's jobs in sectors that are vulnerable. The implication being not to save people or to give people pay rises where they have secure jobs already, any instant ones we all know about, you know, agri-food, those in the border, etc., etc., etc. So you can see how that could be used to counter this strike if it goes on for an extended period of time into a situation where we're facing the Brexit deadline at the end of March, the nurses are ongoing and the government are going, yeah, 
well, what are we going to use our money for? The people who are, are vulnerable because of Brexit or the nurses who are in secure jobs at the moment. And another interesting point to think about how this is going to play out is it, it is, will be a test of Leo Varadkar's mettle uh, in a first public pay dispute. If you cast your mind back a couple of years ago, the guards were similarly agitated, making similar arguments, you know, that they were a special case and the government effectively gave them something what they want. The, government, was, the government caved yeah, to the, the guards, to the guards and there was great, the last minute. There was great chatter around the place that the call was from the very top from and the Kenny's office of the Taoiseach to the Department of Public Expenditure Reform to settle this because the government could not afford to have the guards on strike or the guards would say strike, it was strike. It was a strike. This will be an interesting test. And the Minister for Public Expenditure Reform at the time was... Was Mr P. Donoghue, though he wasn't at the time Minister for Finance. And and I think if you, you know, if you look back to that time, Pascal Donoghue is a much more powerful presence within the government, not just because... He now holds the finance and the public expenditure portfolios, but because of the big generational shift that has taken place uh, within government. And it is viewed in government, particularly around government buildings, that that caving in, while it was understandable, given the threats that the guards were making, that the caving in was understandable. But in pure public pay policy terms, it was a mistake. So, you know, we can't know how this will play out when, you know, after a week of dis- a week or two week of strikes and, you know, patients are howling on Joe Duffy uh, in the afternoon mm-hmm. or whatever. We don't know how that is going to play out. We can make some guesses about it. But I think for now, there is a significant degree of determination, just as there is on the side of the nurses that they will prevail. There is a significant degree of determination within government not to budge on this because of the consequences that it would have for themselves. And the other interesting dynamic is, of course, that the government's hand could be forced by an opposition party that has the power to dictate government policy, if it so wishes. But, again, the strictures of the confidence supply deal mean that Fianna Fáil are also in a very difficult position because the government would be only too delighted, I would imagine, for Fianna Fáil to readily say, give the nurses what they want. That would play into the Fine Gael attack of those guys can't be trusted with the economy. We've already seen some kind of cartoonish press releases in recent days about, you know, Fianna Fáil are going to spend X billion and their promises are off the charts. You can imagine Fianna Fáil are only too well aware of that well, trap. Well, well, so they will make soothing noises towards the nurses, but I don't think any specific action will follow. Well, hold that very thought because in the second part of the podcast, we're going to be issuing crystal balls to all of you and we're going to be looking deeply into them to figure out what is going to be happening for the rest of the year. You're listening to the Irish Times. 2019... Jennifer, is it possible to look beyond Brexit at all and the sheer kind of unpredictability of what might happen in relation to that over the next two or three months? No, I don't think it is. And I think anybody who says that they have a good idea of how things are going to play out in the next couple of months, they're just lying or wrong or kind of delusional because even the British government themselves haven't a clue how to proceed. And we've seen um, conflicting reports, multiple reports in recent days that they are considering delaying basically Brexit. Now, I know that the various different government ministers over there have denied that, but it's something you see often in Brexit is this where newspapers over there float an idea it's denied and then it subsequently turns out to be true. I don't, I don't think there's any real certainty about how the negotiations will play out or specifically how Theresa May will get around the issue of the backstop because where we left things before Christmas and where we are now is that we're in this basically fudge where, where we can't get out of it. Um, we're kind of in this weird limbo. No side can budge and no side 
uh, is willing to budge because obviously it would mean something crashing down such as Theresa May's government um, or the deal itself, etc, etc. So this will, it'll dominate the political agenda as it has done for the last year. But there are other things going on around it. I mean, one thing that we haven't, it's kind of amazing actually that it hasn't been resolved is the issue of the North and, and the Assembly installment. Um, I mean, it, it holds the record now for having the longest period without a government. It's obviously going to go into new territory in terms of records. I don't think anybody will ever beat it at this rate. And the, the feeling in government, I think, is that the issue of the Stormont Assembly and getting it back up off the ground, that this actually probably won't happen until after Brexit. And even if it did happen before Brexit, it wouldn't happen until after the RHI inquiry is done. The feeling is that Sinn Féin wouldn't necessarily go back, go back into a power-sharing agreement with the DUP while this shadow is hanging over Arlene Foster's head. And there is some talk that Arlene Foster made part. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what they wanted. And obviously that's why uh, it, it collapsed the last time. Um, we have that issue with the North not being represented mm. in Brexit talks. But that's also tied in very fundamentally into, into, into the Brexit yeah. thing as well. Fiek, I mean, one has to scenario plan, I suppose. And there are what? There are three routes or uh, on the table that things might go over the next four or five months. One is that the deal is passed and Britain exits the European Union in terms of that deal and at the end of March. Second is that Britain crashes out with no deal. And the third one is probably some form of extension and this torrid political process continues Stay. to wend its way extension down to, to end, a obviously. general election, a people's vote, uh, whatever it might be. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the unanswered question about this talk of an extension. An extension to what end? Are you talking an extension to hold the general election, the referendum, or are you talking about uh, an extension to try and renegotiate a deal that the EU has said is not up for renegotiation? Mm. What is that uh, extension about? Like, if you look at what the Labour Party seems to be saying in the UK, they're saying, you know, we want a general election. And if there's a general election, we want an extension to both win the election and then go back and renegotiate a deal uh, and then come back with it again. That's kind of hard to see. But, you know, the alternatives are so fuzzy and undefined that you wouldn't just... There is still a route for this deal to pass, I think, given that she's just running the clock down, Theresa May. The options, alternatives to her deal are falling away. I think the prospect of a second referendum is just... It would be utterly divisive for the country. Like, if you've seen the the scenes in recent days about mobs outside the House of Commons accosting MPs on their way to work, journalists on their way to work, you would imagine that that type of thing would focus minds aside from the ultra-Remainers who want a second referendum, and let's face it, the Irish political class too, do do want that as well, you would imagine most of the people would go, you know, we just kind of have to get this out of the way. So there's still a route for his her deal to pass, I think. The route for her deal to pass is a massive game of chicken, is really what it is. Isn't it taken as far always, down it has always been close that. to the wire as possible? It has always been break. that. It and is. And the thing about playing a game of chicken is that it only becomes effective at the last minute. Mm. So, you know, if two trucks are lining up and driving at one another on the motorway, nobody swerves when they're a mile apart. They only swerve at the last minute. And that's a pretty high-risk strategy to have. And it is also against the nature of the way the EU does business and the way politics normally does business in terms of scenario planning, as you say, and plans B and so forth. Um, I, I, I agree with Fiek. I think there is a route to pass this. It's uh, it's extremely difficult and we will get a very important signpost next Tuesday, assuming the vote 
goes ahead and we see the actual disposition of the numbers in uh, in Westminster. But as to whether she is likely to get it through over the next thing, I, I, I simply, I simply if, can't if say. If you end up playing this game of chicken, that obviously increases enormously the chances of a chaotic no-deal exit, doesn't it? Yes, it does, kind of by accident. Now, what last night's vote in the House suggests to us is that, you know, or, or confirms for us, rather, is that there is a strong majority against no-deal in the House, but for that to happen, the House must agree on an alternative. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a majority against no deal, but there's not a majority for any class of deal at the moment. So that's where they're stuck. And Danny Finkelstein makes the point. There's a very good column by Danny Finkelstein. He says, while there is a majority against, uh, or against crashing out without a deal, there's no majority for anything else, and therefore you may end up in a situation where you just crash out anyway because nobody can agree amongst themselves. And if there is to be, to a, if there is to be, a, 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 if, they, if they are to block no deal, the opposite to no deal is a deal, but there isn't a majority well, for a deal. God knows, I know we're going to be talking about this again and again over the next few weeks. I mean, in those scenarios we were talking about, if you take the potential disastrous one, the uh, the, the crashing out, the the, uh, the no deal. How are, how well are we prepared for? I mean, for everything from reading Cliff Taylor last weekend and and in the Irish Times talking about a shortage of ready meals in supermarkets. I I gather that's going to be. I, I think that's going to be the least of our problems, isn't it? You know, stockpile your meat, your marmite, and your and your Worcester sauce. You know, the next few weeks will will give us a firmer indication of that because heretofore we've had quite broad indications of preparation. You know, we are reassured the government is preparing for all eventualities, but we haven't really seen nitty-gritty details, sector by sector. The Cabinet next week is to begin a de- departmental approval of measures. So next week, we anticipate the Minister for Transport and the Minister for Health will both present memos detailing exactly the preparations for no deal in terms of keeping the planes in the air, ferry crossings, you know, Simon Harris will talk about medicine supply. So I think we'll really know next week when we see the detail of what we are promised about how prepared we are because we've had kind of broad indications and documents produced so far. Have yet to see anything specific. Yeah, There's a document published with some fanfare before Christmas which had no, almost no very, detail. Very scant. And also, you know, there's the issue of um, we don't have the, the land that we need in terms of the ports and the airports, etc. There was a lot of talk of, and we will need it to expand those buildings and we'll need the customs officers. They're not in place yet and that land's not going to be ready by March. So, not yeah. that well ready. Right, well. There's a view amongst, <laughs> there's said to be a view officially in government that if catastrophe looms, they believe she will extend. She wonders at the comfort blanket that people are clinging to in Dublin, that catastrophe will be avoided by an extension. Right, well. If she has the wherewithal <laughs> and the votes and the and the political capital to do that. But one of the difficulties is, is this is a dynamic, not a static process. And if she loses by a big margin next Tuesday, her authority, which is shaky, uh, at best, is further undermined. If I was, if I keep sighing and say, "Okay, well, we'll see." So here, I'm going to sigh and say, we'll "Okay, again next we'll week." Yes. One of the many, many uh, ironies of all this is that is that the UK is probably, possibly going to exit an EU, which is in itself in all kinds of interesting turmoil and at a moment perhaps of kind of key change. And they're one of the big events this year, even even though they tend to be treated as second order elections in this particular country, is there will be European elections. And it looks Europe wide as if they will reflect the very substantial political changes which have happened over the last over the last five years or so with the rise of the of the populist right parties in particular across Europe, that the composition of the European Parliament is mm-hmm. going to change in quite a fundamental way 
way, which is going to change the way the EU works in quite a fundamental way, isn't it? I wonder, with the interesting thing about the European parliamentary elections this year from a wider view will be the collapse in social democracy across Europe has accelerated significantly since the last European Parliament elections in 2014. The traditional power blocks were the centre-left and the centre-right. Centre-right has fallen the trend as well, but centre-left has just utterly collapsed. The interesting point of view will be to see where that traditional, you know, PES vote, where you had all these umbrellas come under the centre-left vote, where does that go? Like, everybody expects the EPP will still be the dominant party in the European Parliament which likely is the Christian Democrat Party. Likely Manfred Weber then will become the next president of the commission. But what happens to the left? Where does that vote go? I think that'll be the interesting thing. And Ireland, you know, will almost be a, a kind of a opposite of, we could see Ireland being an opposite of what happens elsewhere across Because Europe. you're likely to see um, the, the ver- versions parties, you know, allied with the Lega in Italy, the... Mm. Uh, the National Front, which I think has also been renamed recently in France, the AFD in Germany, the new right-wing populists in Sweden, Sweden Democrats, you know, um, they are going to, I mean, they're not going to be dominant in any way, but they're going to be certainly far more 15, 15% plus bend, of the seats in, in Parliament. And they have a, a, and and so they won't quite be on the fringes anymore. They'll be engaging with, I was reading a piece in Politico EU yesterday, Pat, about how the, the Italian model is interesting to look at how these parties might behave when they actually achieve some significant power in the European Parliament because the Italian government is not is Eurosceptic but it's not anti-European in the same way in the traditional British sense so that you know you could see a new European-wide um, anti-immigrant nativist um, populist right force in the European Parliament which would really quite the question change. I think will I be it. whether it can achieve any degree of coherence and unity within the European Parliament in the way that the big blocs have uh, have traditionally done and you know one of the things that we've seen in this country and is uh, is, is mirrored I think across Europe is in in that 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 power has kept the Christian democratic type parties has kept them reasonably healthy and reasonably strong. It's the left, as Felix says, that has completely splintered. And if that splintering if that splintering extends to the populist and nativist parties, whilst they will make a lot of noise in the in uh, in the new European Parliament, I'm not sure that they that they will be a coherent political force. Well, they are very splintered. And of course, one of the things is that, if, particularly some of them at least, are nationalist parties. And nationalist parties, by, by definition, definition uh, tend yeah. to be against some of the centralising instinct, yeah. instincts of the European Union. Yeah. You'd have to just wonder, like, it, it's a test of this, this kind of wave of populism, or it's not quite a wave, but this growing uh, populist tide has tested kind of all levels of the EU institutions so far. So you have... The council now has Orban and the Italian government around this. You know, the parliament is still, I suppose, 2014 was, there was an element of that, but we've seen the high tide of that type of vote since then. So I think this is going to bring that challenge to the parliament and we to see how the parliament responds to it. True, but the parliament is, you know, let's not... Let's not overstate it. But yeah, yeah, it, but it the is, parliament is vastly the least important oh, yeah, of, of co- European of, institutions. Of course, but mm, it'll still powerful. be... and. You know, as we say, the public have a tradition of treating the European parliamentary elections as second order elections. They will send candidates there. They may not send to their own national parliaments. But still, it will still be a 
further tests of an institution. Okay, well, let's look at the, let's look at the election then through, the, through the traditional Irish prism of the way we look at it, which is it's an opportunity, it's a second order election in which it's an opportunity for parties to kind of to get back on the bike after they had a bad experience at the last general election, or for small parties, or very often for sometimes for for independent candidates to achieve a kind of a level of profile, whatever it be, Peter Casey uh, possibly, or I see. Gary Gannon of the Social Democrats making noises about standing yeah. in Dublin. I would have thought he might have a shot because he's the kind of candidate which has been elected previously in, yeah, in the European Democrats elections. I think we're also going to run another uh, Anne-Marie McNally, who she's their current political director. I think she's interested in that as well. So you've got you've got those two for the SOC Dems. And obviously with Brexit, we have the redistribution of seats. Now, I'm not sure where that left us the last time in terms of whether it happens or doesn't happen whether we get those seats so, or whether we so, don't. Yeah, there's two extra seats in the Irish constituencies, one in Dublin and one in the South constituency, which stretches from Wicklow all the way across so to... It would be a five-seater, which is... A, so yeah. that will be the South constituency, would be a five-seater, Dublin would be a four-seater. So those two extra seats. However, if Article 50 is paused, apparently what will happen is that while... The I, I elections. Love this. I love this. this is real. The elections will take place on the basis of a five-seater and uh, and a four-seater, and the other one being a four-seater in the Northwest constituency. But the last candidates elected, fifth and the fourth candidates, uh, will not take their seats until such time as the UK spare a thought as exited. Spare a thought. European parliamentary elections are fantastic. If you someone becomes an MEP, they have a substitute list. Whereas if this yes. aspiring MEP then makes their way into the national parliament, the su- first up substitute in the list becomes an MEP by automatic. Spare a thought if you're a substitute of the person who's substituting the <laughs> constituency in this space. If Article 56 said that, you know, you're, you're like, you know, you're like yeah, Prince Harry, you're further away from this. Just a slightly further away. Number 27, you know, you're not in the match day squad, <laughs> but... Yeah. So with the gear and the kiss, you know. You're is, this, is, is this true across Europe that there are people who will, will be these sort of Frozen zombie uh, MEPs. If, if Article Fifty is uh... zombie MEPs, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stock the well, 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 there, there's, there's more than a few of them actually. Anyway, as it, as it stands at the moment, but um, the, because the reason why there are more seats is because there are no longer going to be uh, British members of the European Parliament. But then there's Article Fifty, um, so you have to kind of wait for a potential uh, British so runoff Article for the European Parliament. Is paused then. The UK will still be a member yes. of the European Union and therefore entitled to send MEPs to yes. Brussels. But okay. we assume will not send those MEPs. It's like the X factor for uh, Brussels and Strasbourg European elections yeah. or something. So, uh, so much to look forward to. But sorry, I really need this kind of stuff that I I, I, I like. I, it's. If, if Britain doesn't exit the European Union, if the Article 50 is extended and there's a people's vote and Britain comes back, then they have their own European election, what, at the end of the year or early next year or something? And they'd have to. Yeah, they'd have to. Okay. I suppose I just accept Until that. Until then, we have... From an Irish perspective, it could be, although they are second-order elections, it could be the one time when the Irish voter treats a European parliamentary election much like a general election. So you maybe see, given the couple of years we've come through with Brexit, a keener awareness of the European Union, our place within it, uh, the responsibilities we have, the future of the European Union. Perhaps could Irish voters take it a bit more seriously than they have heretofore? May vote, similar to how they did in the general election, less to vote for protest candidates. That could be an interesting dynamic we see feed into the European parliamentary elections. The council elections were on the same day. So is that the outlet the people use to kick the government? It traditionally is. 
and they used the European Parliament for the same thing but mm. will there be a kind of feeling that you know mm, a bit more think, seriously this time I think that's possible but I wouldn't overstate the uh, you know the, the the extent to which people will be invested in the European Parliament elections, uh, partly because its great problem has always been its remoteness. Mm. The other side of the coin on the uh, on the remoteness is the size of the constituencies. Irish people are very well represented numerically by international comparisons. We have a lot of TDs per head of population. Irish politics is and very tactile and very personal. Exactly. Yeah. And people expect their TDs to be on call. If you look at international comparisons, there's an amazingly high level of candidate contact and TD can, uh, contact with voters. And the size of the European Parliament constituencies means that that's that just not possible. The, the Ireland South stretches from Wicklow to Kerry. Yeah. Like it takes in Munster and half of Leinster, Carlow, Kilkenny. So you're, good, you're going to get geographically, well, you have them already, you know, geographically located candidates within parts of these very large... large you always will, like even in Dublin sure. you will have, Fine will probably won two candidates, they probably won north side, south side, but Dublin is the only coherent geographical constituency where people can identify readily with the candidate being of the place they are from. You know, it's hard to see the Labour Party are likely to run Sheila Noonan, for example. Uh, in, in South she lives in the Dublin mountains and says she steps out her door and she's in Wicklow but it's a far cry from stepping out your door and being in you know, the ring of Kerry that's how, how far it stretches so but given that it's a five seater it'll be interesting so last time out um, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin had a good European election so they're coming in with seats to lose perhaps or at least to try and re- retain the next time Fianna Fáil had a, had a bad uh, European election but a decent local election certainly by its lights at the time presumably this time Labour is still trying to you know regain something and be an opening there for Labour you think they think there are opportunities it depends on the candidates presumably. depends on the candidates yeah absolutely I think Fine Gael would more trying to be consolidate what they have obviously it would be great to get another one from their perspective but you know obviously the departure of Brian Hayes has kind of opened up this new race. For example, there's talk of Mary Mitchell O'Connor. I don't know how serious that is. There's talk of Catherine Noon. She seems interested. She does Mary seem interested. She, she does. She's interested. But yeah. that, then again, that's another key vote gone for, for the sure. Taoiseach. And then there is also talk of running um, the former Rosemaria Walsh. Um, and she could appeal to maybe a cohort of voters who, as, as Fia Kampat pointed out, maybe might not be that interested in the European elections in that she's well known, she's a recognisable face. She's a little bit different to what we've seen before. You know, she's former Rose as far as I know. Um, so, yeah. The interesting thing about the twin elections, uh, the locals and the Europeans will be, Fianna Fáil will want to use that as a real boost. You know, we're going from zero seats effectively in the European Parliament to, they hope, one in every constituency, perhaps two in some and then the great boast that Fianna Fáil made after the last local elections was they were now the largest party in local government. Fianna Gael had a bad day. Numerically, Fianna Fáil have more seats across local authorities around the country. They got a higher percentage of the first preference vote in 2014 as well. You would imagine that Fine Gael kind of really can hope to hold what they have in the European Parliament. Gaining anything will be a long shot. So you can see that they would try and make serious inroads into the local authorities' elections to burst that bubble. So in the data count that it won't be just the Fianna Fáil momentum that Fianna Fáil are now growing, the Fine Gael can say... We are now the largest party once more in local government. We are the natural party of government. We are the party people trust. And they came from a very, very low base in those local elections last year, somewhere around 24% in 2014. You would have to think that Fine Gael needs and wants to make substantial gains in local authorities around the country. Uh, the, the Dáil and the Senate are legislatures, uh, composed of legislators. Are they planning to pass any significant legislation this year? 
I think health is always an interesting one to look at, um, you know, in terms of we've seen some of the biggest changes there. Um, there is talk of opt-out uh, organ donation uh, laws being uh, brought before the doll. So basically this would mean where you are considered to be an organ donor unless you explicitly state otherwise. It would be a massive change. Um, and really, really very needed. Um, I think we've seen some of the great work by people like Orla Tinsley, who definitely sure. will campaign for this. So there's that. The government also need to set up their cervical check tribunal. They will, to some extent, their performance will be judged in the long run, partly on how they deal and how they resolve the issue of the cervical check scandal, which emerged last year. It's not over. There are still many, many women waiting to get access to their information, still many women waiting for a resolution to their case. And there is definitely a need for haste in setting up that tribunal and resolving this issue because we're talking about sick women who don't have time on their hands. So that'll be, I think, a pressing issue for them. Anything else? Referendums, I suppose. There's going to be a couple of those, suppose. There's a promised uh, referendum on either shortening the constitutional requirement for couples to be separated for to be living apart for four years before they qualify for a divorce, uh, either shortening that to two years or eliminating it from the constitution entirely and leaving it uh, up to uh, up to primary legislation to deal with. Um, there's also a promised referendum on uh, votes in presidential elections for uh, for Irish citizens living abroad. Um, I think that is. I think the divorce one will almost certainly happen. Uh, I'm in, not entirely convinced that the votes for immigrants one uh, will happen um, because there's not as much of an appetite for it as might be pretended or asserted. Uh, partly also because it remains to be seen how the logistical task of identifying the Irish citizens abroad who qualify for votes would be uh, would be carried okay, out. I mean, so, for instance, is it to be people who are entitled to Irish citizenship, Irish citizens, people who have applied for an Irish passport, which involves apparently hundreds of thousands of people in the UK, uh, uh, how how well we've touched on this before it seems clear that they would have to be legally irish citizens in order to be able to vote in an irish election just the fact that they're eligible to be irish citizens and they can they can't tip up at the embassy and 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 cast a vote but i want to ask another question about it which is that if somebody who's been living in australia for 5 years can vote in an irish presidential election why can't i vote in the presidential election if i happen to be on holiday in portugal that week you know, why 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 are their rights greater than mine in terms of you know uh geographical distance I can, see my, I can see my case coming before the High Court already. Yeah, in, in Ray Hughes' holiday in Portugal. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. can. I can. I good luck with that. Um, Listen, I look forward to your uh, pain slot in Morning Ireland to explain your predicament from your sun lounger in Portugal. <laughs> I might stick to Liveline for that one. Actually. Yeah, yeah. The point about it is that there are an awful lot of uh, logistical questions. I think that sure. have not yet really been teased out, um, and I would be slightly surprised if they are done so in time for uh, a referendum this year. I have to say, listen to all you guys, I'm thinking, yeah, there's actually not that much happening this year except Brexit looming like some kind of uh, Hollywood blockbuster monster coming over the, the hill at us and everything else is just well, you know, in shadow. Else, uh, everything else takes place under the shadow of Brexit. That's entirely true, including the very basic question of the survival of the government and uh, and the continuation in in office of uh, of Parliament, which we know, were it not for Brexit, we would now be looking at a general election or perhaps we would have already had one. Um, so you're entirely right. Brexit overshadows everything and everything must be 
read in the light of Brexit. The difficulty for us in looking ahead at what we think is going to happen this year is that the trajectory that Brexit takes is so uh, unpredictable at the moment. And that, I think, will continue to be the case for some weeks. Uh, on that unsatisfactory and rather quasi-apocalyptic note, we shall leave it there. Thanks very much to Pat, to Fiek, and to Jennifer. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. Uh, I've been asked to mention that we are also available on Spotify, so you can get us there as well. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are extremely welcome. As always, you can get me at hlinna at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter but until the next time thanks very much for listening